Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest on the show is Rob Perez. He was a lower middle class kid from Los Angeles with some hoop dreams that never quite materialized. No big deal. He found he had a knack for sales and paid his way through college by working at fitness centers. Chance brought Perez into the pharmaceutical sales business. He rose to the ranks and ended up succeeding beyond his wildest dreams at Cubis Pharmaceuticals, the antibiotic developer acquired in 2015 by Merck. Now he's recruiting fellow biotech executives to put some of their money and talents to work on big, broad-based societal causes like poverty and homelessness. When you hear Rob Perez's personal story, I think you'll see how this industry draws talented people from many walks of life and how it can make an even bigger impact by simply remembering that fact. How can biotech do some more effective things to bridge some of the gaps in our society to help some of the have-nots? Rob Perez has some creative ideas to share on this score and a model to study at a nonprofit called Life Science Cares. Now, before we get going, just about everyone in the cancer R&D business is thinking about combination therapy and complementary mechanisms of action. Not only do drug developers need to see proof of their biological mechanism as a monotherapy, but also in combination with other treatments that are fast emerging on the scene. This gets complicated in a hurry, especially when you think about all the possible mechanisms, dose regimens, and tumor types that need to be taken into account. Companies today often have to burn through 30 to 50 patients in a phase one clinical trial to get the answer to these important questions. That takes a lot of precious time and money. Presage Biosciences is working to improve this approach. They are working with biopharma companies to use Presage's patented microinjector device that enables intratumoral microdosing of experimental cancer drugs. This microdosing tool can allow for a half dozen or more combinations of drugs to be injected directly into a single tumor while the tumor is still in the mouse or in the patient. This is a way to run multiple experiments at once to get maximum information to guide drug development on time and on budget. The device is being used in a clinical trial right now. To learn more, go to presagebio.com. Now, join me and Rob Perez for the long run. Here with me today for the Long Run Podcast is Rob Perez, a longtime biopharmaceutical executive. Uh, welcome for joining me on the show, Rob. Thanks, Luke. I'm a big fan of the show and honored to be on. Great. So um, can you tell me a little bit about bef- uh, your your story? Where, where did you grow up? Uh, what did your parents do? Sure. I was born and raised in L.A., in and around L.A. Um, my parents... Uh, are both uh, originally from Louisiana, New Orleans specifically, um, but they uh, moved to LA before I, before I was born. My dad worked for the uh, city of Los Angeles in parks and recreation, and my mom was uh, an administrative assistant in between taking care of us. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Now, did you have any siblings? I do. I'm one of four. I have two older brothers and a younger sister. Um, we, uh, we had, uh, what I would call an, an idyllic childhood. <laughs> we, uh, 
didn't have an abundance of money, but we certainly had an overabundance of love and support and direction and uh, just, uh, you know, had a great time growing up in L.A. So this is kind of a, you know, middle class upbringing. Let's see if I can do the math here. You're uh, you're in your early 50s. So this would have been, you know, coming up in the 70s. Yep, it, it was. Um, we were, uh, as I said, I don't think I think we would have been stretching to call it middle class. <laughs> we were maybe lower middle class. But um, but again, I never knew um, anything in terms of uh, wanting for stuff. Um, you know, we knew that we didn't have a ton of money, but uh, our life was was very, very happy. And I guess it was somewhat uh, influenced by the fact that sometimes the, the, the kids around us didn't necessarily have the support uh, that we had from our family. And that was definitely noticed. But uh, from our perspective, we uh, grew up in a in, in really great circumstance. Uh huh. So maybe not, you know, you didn't have the latest fashion jacket or that kind of thing. But, um, you know, that that wasn't too big of a source of consternation. No, actually, I wrote a blog uh, once called The Gift of Poverty. And, and poverty is probably a strong word because I would definitely wouldn't say we grew up in poverty. But um, it, what I as I look back now, I realize that it was um, a gift for us to not have everything um, to learn what it was like to work for stuff and to deal with, um, you know, incomplete sets of, of toys and equipment and all of that stuff. It was uh, ended up being definitely, I think, formative for all of us that, you know, the fact that we had to work hard and, and understand that not everybody has what we have and that uh, it's, it's not necessarily a disadvantage if you're not blessed with all of the all of the things that you ask for. That ended up being, I think, um, uh, formative for me, helped me to understand the value of work and the understand the value of the gifts that I did have. Now, Perez, this is a Hispanic surname. Um, people probably make that assumption very quickly uh, about you, um, but that's not the whole story. Where, where, <laughs> where does your where's your family come from? Yeah, so um, I, I have the, a really weird ethnicity. Um, I call it I'm racially ambiguous. <laughs> so <laughs> I have a, a Hispanic surname, but my parents are from Louisiana and, and they're they're Creole. We're all Creole, obviously. The, the um, kind of origin there is our people kind of were the result of a mixture between the French and Spanish settlers of Louisiana and the slaves that they mixed with, and out came this this kind of uh, group of people known as Louisiana Creoles, who are um, identified as Black and African American, uh, but most have uh, French surnames. Uh, there was a Spaniard in there somewhere, which is where I got Perez. But I often get. Uh, you know, uh, people will ask me whether I speak Spanish and whether I'm Hispanic, and really I'm not. Uh, much more identified as African American than than um, anything else. But I'm I'm a mixture of a whole lot of stuff. And that's how your family uh, identified itself. Um, yes, all throughout as, as African American. Yeah, because especially you know my father uh, growing up in the segregated South in Louisiana. That meant that you had to, if you were at that time one drop African American, you were, you were black, you were colored. So he went through, went to, you know, African American schools and 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 um, 
uh, movie theaters and everything else. It was a segregated life in the South. And uh, both my parents lived on the side of, uh, of being black. And then moving to Los Angeles, I mean, this is one of the most diverse places in the entire world. There's all kinds of people living, you know, next to each other, getting along for the most part. <laughs> um, what, um, what was the, the milieu like for you growing up uh, in, in such a diverse place? Sure. Well, my parents moved to Los Angeles before we were born. So I was born in Los Angeles. And um, it was a little weird in that when we moved to when I was born, I was born in a city called Inglewood, which was um, uh, a, a white neighborhood a long, long time ago and turning into a black neighborhood uh, when we were kids. So, um, you know, we were never the majority just because we we had a mixed um, racial upbringing. So when we were in a, in a black neighborhood, we weren't necessarily the, the blackest people on the block. And we were in, um, uh, later on, we were in a very Asian neighborhood. We were very different as we, uh, we moved into that one. So we really learned what it was like to be different. And, um, and frankly, our parents really pushed hard on the value of difference and the benefits of being different. So, um, it was kind of drilled into our heads, very young that uh, it was great to be different. And uh, you celebrated your own difference as well as everyone else's. And I think that's one of the beauties of LA is, is it is such a diverse place. There's lots of lots of difference here, no question. Yeah, I mean, you uh, you go to school, is this a, a pretty racially mixed school? Do you, do you play on, you know, diverse teams, sports teams? Yeah, I mean, I, I when I was a kid, frankly, even now, basketball has always been a big part of my life. So um, definitely played a, a lot of basketball with lots of people from various uh, racial backgrounds. Um, and that's the great part about athletics, right, is it brings everybody together um, no matter what, no matter where you come from, because you're a team and you're competing as a team. So um, it, was, uh, it, was a, it was a great place to, uh, to be a kid. Um, and L.A., I think, is a great place to be a kid from that perspective and that there are so many different people from lots of different ethnicities and, and walks of life. And you get to learn a lot about them. You can also go outside and do stuff year round, which is kind of nice. <laughs> it is kind of nice. <laughs> I appreciate that now, especially after being in Boston for 20 years. <laughs> I bet. So as a young person, uh, when you're thinking about what you want to do in your life, um, what what captivated your imagination? Well, up till um, college, really, I, I thought that basketball was going to be my life. Um, I, I, you know, basketball was was kind of everything to me. And I went to a, uh, a state school called Cal State L.A. and uh, thought that it'd be the first step on a kind of Hall of Fame basketball career. And uh, two <laughs> things got in the way. <laughs> two things got in the way. One was... Um, I had knee surgery prior to my uh, freshman year, so right after high school, and I was I was training for college. I ended up uh, uh, having a pretty significant knee surgery, and the second and most important was I really wasn't that good at basketball. <laughs> turns out, <laughs> so uh, between those two, um, basketball pretty much uh, was over for me at uh, before it even started as I entered college. But you are a pretty tall guy, right? About six four, six five. Yeah, six three. Yep. Okay. Okay. But maybe, you know, a tweener. I don't know. You'd be a yeah. point guard today, right? <laughs> exactly. 
Okay, so when basketball was no longer in the cards, uh, then what? So I decided I better turn into a student pretty quick. So I um, started working and uh, started hitting the books a lot harder at Cal State LA. Cal State LA is kind of a, it's a state school. It educates a lot of uh, kids from the inner city. Um, and it also has classes all the time. So I could work full time and go to school full time. So I worked in the fitness uh, uh, industry. So I was one of those cheesy um, fitness center salespeople and managers that would uh, tour you around the facility in the 80s and try to take your money before you left the place. So <laughs> it was uh, it was actually uh, a really great career to have while you're working and that it was flexible. And it did teach me a lot about influence and negotiation and um, and selling. And I kind of fell in love with selling, which uh, I guess became the foundation of my career from there. Fitness is one of those areas where people say they want to do something, but they actually do something else. <laughs> and you kind of have to read that, right? Very true. You know, helping people to make decisions that uh, they want to make, but sometimes they get in their own way. So that was a big part of what I did going to school. So you're paying your way through school. Uh, yeah. And, and what, what about the, the coursework uh, jumped out at you? Well, I was a business major, uh, marketing specifically. So um, I, I, I really enjoyed uh especially the marketing and um, and selling aspect of business. Uh, I was doing it in my career. And, you know, the idea that you could um, kind of study people and psychology, understand how people make decisions and um, in an appropriate way, uh, help them to make decisions that are good for them. Um, that to me was a was a really cool thing. So that that really was the focus of my study. And um, I spent a lot of time both practicing um, selling and, and uh, while I was working as well as studying it in school. Oh, so you really did have a, a virtuous feedback loop there. You, you'd learn about something in class and you could try it out at the gym. Absolutely. And, and you know, I was a pretty young um, manager of some of these fitness centers. So they entrusted, um, you know, I think I was like 19, 20 years old and I was running fitness centers. Um, and so I was uh, not only getting a chance to try it myself, but also teaching others about this. And I was pretty annoying in many instances, but uh, it was a lot of fun and uh, certainly um, a good way to work your way through school. No question. OK, so you get your degree and then what? So I got my degree and I did pretty well in school and I had this this uh, this selling experience and I thought, geez, I should get a, I should get a really good job, not just your average job coming out of school. And so I, I did have a lot of nice offers, particularly at that time, there were a lot of companies that, um, or I shouldn't say a lot of companies, there were some companies that were well known to recruit minority students. And I had um, a number of offers from those companies, turned them all down and um, joined this, this company that was a very fast growing company in the telecommunications space that sounded awesome. And uh, I took a job with them um, as a as an account representative and um, learned soon thereafter that they didn't deliver on any of the promises that they said <laughs> when they were recruiting. So I was I'm pretty sure I was clinically depressed at that point because I thought I had made the biggest mistake of my life and um, found out like three months later, I thought I'd ruined my life. 
And uh, I just wanted at, to get out of that. <laughs> at this uh, point, you're like 22, right? And exactly. had no idea that, of course, this is no big deal. You can totally start over. Exactly. But I just thought, you know, I had, I had been pretty planful in that, um, you know, I uh, there's a great backstory that we can talk about later uh, that I had turned down the opportunity to continue to work with this fitness center that I had uh, joined called L.A. Fitness, which was um, one of the became this billion, multi-billion dollar blockbuster. I managed the first L.A. Fitness. So I turned that down in order to go to college and now after going to college, I, uh, I picked the wrong company. So I was pretty much over two in my career choices. And uh, I basically was just scouring the newspaper for anything. And I saw an ad for Stewart Pharmaceuticals um, and it was $27,000 a year and a car. So I was like, perfect. <laughs> I didn't know wow. anything about pharmaceuticals. I didn't know what pharmaceuticals was. I didn't know anything about the the industry. I just wanted something that, you know, I could make some money and, um, and, you know, use my whatever sales experience I had. So that's what got me into the pharmaceutical industry. Now, this is a name that I confess I haven't even heard of. Uh, <laughs> what were they selling at that time? So Stuart was a precursor to ICI, which is a precursor to Zeneca, which then became AstraZeneca. So it's all kind of the same company. But okay. um, it was uh, I was selling uh, a tenolol to Norman, which was a uh, uh, antihypertensive product. That was the first first drug that I sold. And the territory was actually South Central, East L.A., all of the absolute worst areas of Los Angeles. They kind of drew a line around all the areas that probably no one else wanted to work and uh, created a territory. And I was willing to take anything. So I, uh, I took it and it ended up being a great, great place to start the career. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So how, um, what were you doing? I mean, this is back in the days when, uh, I mean, sales reps could hang out at doctor's offices, meet yeah. doctors, talk to them about uh, their patients and the drugs, right? Yeah. It was an awesome place to start. I mean, really, I was very blessed because um, it was uh, not a great area. So everybody kind of watched out for each other. The physician's offices um, watched out for the sales reps and, uh, you know, you could have a conversation with with physicians about um, your products, and it wasn't a you know a kind of a, a highfalutin area. Um, so you had pretty good access, and I had a lot of sales experience. So I figured I'd be a pretty good salesperson, and I I ended up being a pretty good salesperson. I um, kind of differentiated myself there, and and ended up having a pretty typical commercial career with Zeneca um, in sales and, and ultimately moving into management and then marketing in the home office and then back out into more um, senior sales management um, with that company. So how many years were you there? I was there nine years. Okay. So you really are working your way up. You're, uh, were you in Los Angeles the whole time or did you move around? Moved around a lot. I think six times in seven years. Um, Southern, Northern California, um, again, out to Delaware, um, back to, to Northern and then back down to Southern California. So lots of moves, lots of new position. One of the joys of being in a big company was uh, pretty much every 18 months to two years, I was offered another opportunity and I'd moved pretty quickly. I think I became the, the youngest regional director they had ever had. 
at 29, which was when I first kind of started with the company. I thought that was the ideal job. If I could get that before I retired, I'd be making it. Um, <laughs> and uh, I ended up doing it uh, uh, by the time I was 29. And um, my boss in that job, kind of the last part of that job, was a guy named Mike Bonney. And um, Mike uh, uh, was my boss for a pretty short time. I had met Mike previously at, um, in the home office, but didn't know him well. But uh, he moved on to Biogen as their head of sales and, frankly, really leader of the commercial effort and uh, called me and said, hey, you should come check this out. Uh-huh. Did you guys like hit it off right away when he, he was your boss? Did he pull you aside and say, you know, Rob, uh, I think someday, you know, you and I could run a company together. <laughs> you know, it's funny. Um, I have the, the greatest uh, story of meeting Mike uh, ever, and I, I'll try to make it really short. But um, when I was in Delaware, I was uh, I was, you know, first time outside of L.A. And so moving to Delaware, you have these homes with no fences in between the yards and big yards, which I was completely foreign to me. So um, I bought this this massive amount of something called mushroom soil, which is basically manure. Um, and because I, I'm an idiot, I ordered way too much of it. <laughs> um, I, you know, I called the guy and said, I need about 50 yards of, of mushroom soil because my neighbors told me I needed it. And they delivered this mountain of manure to my house and <laughs> my wife was like what are you doing you idiot <laughs> so i uh i spread this stuff everywhere and um i still probably had you know however many yards left and i was wondering where i'm going to get rid of this and people in in the home office at zeneca said call this guy mike bonnie he's really into gardening so uh i called this guy mike bonnie never met him before i told him um, hey, meet me at my house. And I'm thinking, I wonder how much I'm going to have to pay this guy to take this mushroom soil. And he was thinking, I wonder how much this guy's going to charge me for this mushroom soil. <laughs> <laughs> this is an easy negotiation, huh? <laughs> yeah. So he pulls up in like his pathfinder and we have this negotiation and we settle on, uh, I'm going to give him the mushroom soil for free. And I think he was so like uh, enamored that he was getting all this free mushroom soil. He like shoveled it into his car and uh, and took it away. So that was my first Mike Bonney meeting. Uh, and, and we uh, have been friends ever since. Not, you know, we're, we're different, different people. We're not the closest of friends, at least not at that point. But uh, yeah, we have a, we have a past, Mike and I. So yeah, um, for those for those unfamiliar, Mike Bonney's former CEO of, of Cubis Pharmaceuticals, where you ended up later in your career, you worked with him closely for years. Um, yes. <laughs> um, OK, so so you're um, you're working your way up pretty quickly. The sales and marketing side of the business, uh, you're you spend nine years there uh, at, you know, what we now call AstraZeneca. Yeah. Um, what was your next step? So then I go to Biogen. Um, I, uh, again, I kind of checked it out and uh, just fell in love with the place. Um, fell in love with the, the people, the energy, just the, the intellect um, was just, it just blew me away. So I started Biogen um, as a regional director. Um, you know, I went from having like a 400 person team to a 12 person team, um, but was just enamored with building a company. So this was about six months prior to um, when Avonex was launched, 
Um, so we had a lot to do in a short amount of time, but we built uh, a sales organization and then ultimately a commercial organization. And uh, love Biogen, uh, still do. I'm, a, I'm still a, a very proud alum. Um, and uh, as I was doing that, I also, uh, Biogen supported me going back to business school. So I went back to school to UCLA to get my MBA. And uh, uh, soon thereafter, moved into Boston to uh, lead the uh, sales organization and then ultimately lead the neurology business at Biogen. Okay, so you were a regional director at Biogen, but still in Southern California when you joined the company. Yes. So you could you could take classes at UCLA and get yes. your um, a business degree. Yep. Okay. Okay. And uh, and but a part of the launch of Avenix, which was the first big product for Biogen, really yes, the company it was. that you know brought real revenue to it. Um. So, what year was this now? This is nineteen ninety five that I started at Biogen. Yeah, and then I moved uh -huh. into the home office in nineteen ninety nine. Okay, so that's uh, you know your your real move to the Boston area, the yes. the community that's there. Um, okay, so uh, how long were you at Biogen? I was at Biogen for nine years. Um, There's a pattern in, here, Rob. There is kind of a pattern. <laughs> yeah, I, I I expected to be at Biogen for you know for a, frankly a shorter time, especially after I went back east because I didn't think I'd be there that long. I hadn't been anywhere. Um, for too too long and i didn't think i'd spend that much time in in on the east coast but um i'm still there 20 some years later have a next so you're selling this now if i remember um there were some competing interferons that came out ar around the same time i mean how did you uh, what was the sales and marketing challenge for you there well um, the other product at the time was also a beta interferon by um Burlex, which was uh, ultimately be, uh, moved into Shearing Age. Um, but really, the, the challenge was the speed of having to put everything together. And, um, you know, when we got there, again, we had about six, seven months before launch, there really wasn't much built uh, commercially. So we had to build everything very, very quickly. And I, I learned an important business lesson. The, it was the benefit of um, putting in learning processes because we, we really couldn't um, have everything perfectly tight. We didn't have enough time. So we basically built uh, an organization that learned really fast. So we, um, that helped us to um, better refine the kinds of people that we want, the processes that we want, um, and we ended up doing very, very well. I think we became market leader after seven or eight months um, on the market because we, frankly, listened to our customers. We listened to the market and, uh, you know, provided them with what they were looking for. What do you mean by an organization that learns quickly? How do you, how, how do you like, build that into a framework? You build that in by, by establishing, well, it's really two things. One is having people who are willing to um, kind of have a growth mindset or look at, at, at how we're doing and figure out how we can do it better and not spend too much time grandstanding on, on all the great stuff that's been done. And secondly, having processes in place so that you um, kind of have to learn. So what that meant was we had uh, established business reviews and, and um, customer insight meetings where the people who were closest to the customer could feedback 
what they were hearing and what the customer wanted, what they liked, what they didn't like. We had those processes built in and um, set up uh, opportunities for us to objectively look at the business um, on a regular basis. So that's that really impacted me and it's been a part of every business that I've run ever since. And then those learnings, like something new, like, I don't know, maybe you've never sold into Nevada before, or you don't have a rep in Nevada. But, you know, the first thing you learn from Nevada gets funneled through Southern California, gets funneled through the whole organization. And if there's an insight from there, well, then, you know, very quickly, everybody's selling it that way. Exactly. And it also teaches you to to develop unique insights on, for example, customer segmentation. You know, you learn in business school how to uh, how to segment markets and, and treat different segments differently. But um, where you really establish value is when you can have a unique uh, insight into segmentation. And you end up learning that Nevada is a lot like Boise. It's a lot like Miami, for example because you're really listening to the customers and you can you can segment that way instead of typically like geographically or, or otherwise. So by doing that, you uh, can really have a business that is finely tuned to the needs of your customers. Presage Biosciences has a microinjector device that enables intratumoral microdosing of experimental cancer drugs. Why does this matter? It enables researchers to evaluate several drugs at once against a single tumor while the tumor is still in the mouse or in the patient. You can test multiple combinations in a single experiment, helping keep your drug development plan on time and on budget. This device is being used in clinical trials right now. To learn more, go to presagebio.com. And do you enjoy the Long Run Podcast? You'll love Timmerman Report, my subscription newsletter. For $149 a year, individuals can get in-depth analysis, news features, and perspectives you won't find elsewhere. Go to TimmermanReport.com slash subscribe to learn more. Group discounts are available. So you're, um, you're doing well. You, you build this infrastructure. You, um, you've got the market leadership in a growing market. In MS, um, Biogen's doing pretty well with that in the late '90s. Um, you're there nine years. What yes. what um, what was the next itch that you had to scratch? Well, it was a uh, we had a, a long process at Biogen. You know, early success followed by some challenges, followed by losing our orphan drug designation. I was running the business at that time, and we had to kind of reinvent the business, which was uh, a lot of fun, but also challenging. Um, then the uh, the merger happened with IDEC, and um, it meant even though I was running the neurology business, it meant more folks coming in, uh, maybe more bureaucracy than I was willing to deal with at that point. And I decided I wanted to look for uh, uh, a situation where I could be the lead commercial person. I was the leader of the of a big chunk of the business, but there were still people above me who were um, leaders of the entire commercial effort. So. I kind of wanted to bet on myself and was looking for a Boston-based um, company that was building and needed a, a head of commercial. And Cubist um, happened to be right at that point. It also happened to be led by my friend Mike, who um, as, and also Ken Bate, who was also another person who was at uh, at Biogen, who I knew well. And Ken was on the board at Cubist, so. 
Um, having both of those folks involved and having the absolute right position available made the right uh, move for me to go to Cubist. Did you um, seek them out for advice, like uh, casually say, you know, I'm, I'm a little restless uh, thinking about that next move. What do, you, what do you think? Or how did that come about? Yeah, well, certainly Mike and I continued to talk. We had become friends um, and um, I was aware of what he was doing. Um, he had left Biogen a few years before. Um, uh, so he was kind of uh, doing his own thing for a while and uh, just thought that it was the right move. It was the right move, both uh, personally, professionally. My kids were, uh, you know, uh, in school and middle school, and I, I really wasn't looking to leave Boston or uh, uproot them. So I wanted something that was local. So everything kind of uh, made sense at the time. So Cubist at this time was uh, how many people? I'll bet at this time it's about 200 people. They had just hired the sales force, um, which was a little unfortunate because uh, I had a little bit of a different perspective on the type of folks that we wanted. Um, so we had already hired a team and... Um, Candidly, we ended up turning over a lot of that team, my fault, because I had a different view on, on the type of folks that we needed, um, especially after coming through an experience at Biogen where we, we went from a, a, an operation that, that didn't really have to compete much uh, when we first started to a hyper-competitive uh, situation within the MS market. And I saw that evolution and, and really had a strong point of view on what it took to be successful in a more competitive market. And certainly that's what we were going to be dealing with at Cubist. Yeah, because your product was uh, daptomycin, uh, Cubicin, yes. um, this potent antibiotic um, for, you know, the really worrisome infections people get, you know, typically treated in the, in the, in the hospital. Yes, MRSA for, for the most part. Well, what, what kind of people uh, did you think you needed to bring in? What kind well, of phenotype of individual? Again, kind of getting back to uh, what I said before, too, is I wanted people that uh, very much had um, a growth mindset and, and, a, and a, a view of um, kind of winning collectively. A lot of times at that time within our industry, people were leaving pharma because they, were, they felt restricted, at least commercial people, um, in that they felt like they were cogs in the wheel and these big sales forces, and they were seeking um, autonomy uh, and a more entrepreneurial setting, which was great. But what we learned at Biogen is if you just had that entrepreneurial setting and didn't also have folks that cared about the collective enterprise, you end up with a lot of cowboys and cowgirls out there doing their own thing, um, which is which could be great in, in non-competitive circumstances. But in a competitive circumstance, you need them to certainly think on their own, but also to have a commitment to the the enterprise as a whole. So, you know, we used to talk about it. We, we have to have people who have the ability to make decisions because they're the closest to the customer, but also be willing to uh, not act on their own, to act as a collective effort, to be able to deliver one message, for example. So um, we, we ended up kind of bringing in more people who were focused on team and less uh, mercenary slash individuals. I see. So um, you're, um, did you build this into the 
compensation structure of people? Because, I mean, in sales, of course, I mean, people get bonuses for hitting their sales goals, yeah, uh, we, prescription volumes. And and uh, do, you, do you kind of layer in something else there for um, bonuses for team success? We did. Um, we, uh, we definitely had, I don't remember the exact percentage, but we had an extraordinary percentage of people's objectives based on team. So um, relative to, um, you know, other biotech or small uh, pharmaceutical companies. So we were trying to attract people who really cared about um, uh, not only doing well personally, but cared about something bigger and, and not only the company, but frankly, the benefits we were providing to patients. So um, we worked very hard on trying to um, create a, a behavioral kind of um, menu for the type of people that, that uh, we liked and that were successful in our organization. And the good news was after that initial turnover and after we started to hire towards that, um, that phenotype, we ended up with an extraordinary team and one that stayed together for pretty much the entire run at Cubist. And how many years were you at Cubist? Eleven. <laughs> okay, yeah. so a little more than nine. Exactly. <laughs> it's within the standard deviation. Um, but but um, so I mean, this was um, a very successful product. It was a billion dollar product. Um, it was treating serious infections. I mean, this is uh, and, and the people that I've talked to who worked at Cubist in those years. I mean, there was a really strong culture and esprit de corps. Like we're out there you know, really helping people, doing a lot of good. Yeah, we, um, and, and Mike really deserves a lot of credit on this too. I, I think we did build a company that was about more than, certainly we had to deliver shareholder value and we wanted to succeed and, and sell a lot, but we really felt like we were um, a part of a bigger mission. You know, as you're aware, the larger pharmaceutical companies had all left um, the uh, infectious disease space. And we were, at the time, we were the largest uh, company in the world doing infectious disease research, or at least antibacterials research. Um, and we believe we were the last line of defense against the bacteria. And, and we really thought that, uh, that we were doing something um, uh, very special. So we had a strong commitment to patients and um, a strong commitment to the community as well. We, uh, a big part of our cultural effort was attracting people who cared a lot about the world around them. Uh, we had a lot of volunteer efforts and a lot of um, uh, commitment to the, the, the greater Boston community. And that brought in a certain type of people who um, uh, were just great fits for what we wanted to do. Yeah, and I remember speaking with Mike, more so than yourself. I mean, when I was uh, paying attention to the the Cubist story. I mean, there there was you know this antibiotic crisis uh, going on with, as you mentioned, the the lack of R and D at pharma companies or or the the abandonment of it. Um, Mike was out there, you know, meeting with members of Congress, um, you know, talking with the FDA about you know protocols to you know bring back incentives and and uh, make it a little uh, more streamlined to go through regulations uh, because otherwise you know we're going to lose the fight against the bugs. Exactly and. Again, we, we felt like we were uh, doing work that was very, very important that no one else was doing. So um, our business model was, you know, I talked to people about Cubist. It was an overnight success that took 11 years. You know, our, our business model was not sexy for a long time. And, uh, but we were about executing and, and about doing what's right for, for patients because we really believed. And I think the people, most importantly, the people who 
were on the front line, be it in research or in sales, they really believed and got up every morning thinking that they were going to make a difference because of the work that they did. And uh, I think that that made the company and the culture really special. So now the last couple years of Cubist, when I was covering it, I mean, it looked like um, it might stay independent uh, for a while. It made a couple acquisitions of its own and built out a little more of a pipeline, both discovery and development stage, um, in addition to, uh, you know, your bread and butter there with Cubison. Uh, But then Merck comes along. Oh, maybe before I get there, you you, you did a transition. Like you um, you became the CEO for a while uh, yeah. when Mike stepped aside, right? Yeah. So I I had moved from um, commercial to COO and then president um, for a while, and then we had a transition um, in place where Mike was stepping down and I was moving in. I joined the board and. Um, as that was going on, the uh, kind of first um, Merck inquiries uh, happened, which um, was somewhat fortunate because I was already kind of in place um, doing a lot of the the internal operating of the company. And it allowed me to stay focused on building the company that I was going to lead and Mike to stay focused on ensuring that we were getting the deal um, right. You know, this was not... Um, our strategy. We were not intending to flip the company. And uh, up until it was finally done, we weren't sure that that this was going to go through. We were doing what's right by our shareholders. But um, it was certainly, you know, I, I was putting in place some new um, uh, kind of strategic options for the board that they had approved. And we were kind of running in that direction um, when finally Merck came up with a, a number that we just couldn't say no to. So Mike had moved upstairs to be chairman and you were CEO, how long, how much time transpired there before, you know, Merck comes along with, uh, you know, this pretty strong interest? Well, Merck, Merck's interest happened when, before we actually made the change. So I was already, uh, I was not officially CEO, but I was, you know, the, the board had kind of tapped me and we were talking about what the, the next version of the company was going to be at the time that the Merck offer came in. So the official amount of time that I was CEO was 21 days, <laughs> which was <laughs> um, the, you know, uh, the we kept pushing back the actual uh, announcement because um, these negotiations were going on. So when the announcement happened, it was somewhat, uh, you know, just a, a formality because we knew at that point that Merck had already, we had already had a deal. So um, I do think that my record for, uh, you know, market cap uh, increase over 21 days is probably um, one that will never be broken. (laughs) Uh, Don't let anyone take that away from you. (laughs) Okay, so um, so Merck makes this acquisition. It's uh, something like nine billion dollars, I think. Yes. Um, You know, uh, lots of people. can do a lot of different things, including you. Um, you uh, was there any thought that you might s- stay at Merck in some capacity, or was this really like, okay, now it's time for me to reassess what I want to do next? No, there really wasn't um, any thoughts of me staying. I I, I knew that um, 
you know, at the time I had just kind of, I had a little taste of CEO, not the 21 days, but the, the, you know, previous year or so uh, before that. And um, I was really thinking what's going to be my next gig and my next CEO gig. Um, and certainly the advice I was getting from friends and people in the industry was just that, that, uh, you know, you need to get out there and run your next company. And I got a lot of very nice uh, offers and board offers uh, and really, frankly, just had a chance to sit back and ask myself what made me happy and um, tried not to listen too much to what everyone was telling me I should do and, and focus on what I wanted to do. And uh, this was one thing I, I think you uh, you went through this journey of self uh, discovery or awareness uh, and you wrote about it on my Timmerman report site yep. right before Christmas. And I really appreciated this because you talked about in that article um, that that constant tension between wanting to achieve something in business, uh, wanting to you know have a good family life, not wanting to neglect one or the other. Um, it, this, this idea of like being the type A personality who achieves things, right? I mean, yep. you, you obviously are that, um, but recognizing that you can't maximize one thing without, you know, really, um, you know, put, expending something else, losing something else. Um, and so how, how did your thinking evolve on this? That, that, how do you make yourself happy? Yeah. So I think going back, I, um, look, I had achieved more than I ever thought I, I was going to as a kid, that's for sure. So, um, as the achievements kept piling up, um, I found that the happiness wasn't, um, as great on the other side of each achievement as I thought. Um, frankly, I was really good at just simply resetting the next goal um, and then running to the next goal and, and uh, never really getting to the happiness that I thought I'd get from achievement. So um, that's, that was a big part of my life um, into my, my 40s. And um, as I kind of sat back and said, wow, look, look at where I am. But, it, but the level of happiness really wasn't there. And frankly, one of the things that, um, that I adopted that made me tremendously happy was uh, the ability to give back to others. Um, and uh, we did this a lot at Cubist, and uh, it was a big part of who I was and who Mike is. And um, we, uh, I, I was on the board of a lot of uh, nonprofit organizations and um, was doing a lot and encouraging our people to do a lot for the community. And that was something that gave me tremendous happiness. So as I uh, left Cubis and I thought, okay, now I've got uh, the, the blessing of a financial windfall, um, I can really think about doing what makes me happy. And uh, as I thought about it, I still definitely wanted to work and work full time. I was too young to you know, sit on a beach somewhere. But I also yeah, How wanted, old were you at this point? Gosh, I guess fifth, just turning 51. Okay. So a lot of mileage left on the tires. Exactly. <laughs> Um, and, uh, at least I hope so. <laughs> um, and so I, uh, I really thought hard about, um, about what my next opportunity would be. I listened to tons of, of really good job opportunities, um, but thought that, uh, having a more kind of diverse life of being able to, uh, give back, you know, work on meaningful things and, and be involved with meaningful companies but also have time for my family um, 
was all was something I wanted to try. I wanted to try this new um, kind of balanced life, and uh, that's what I've been doing ever since. Now, this is 2015, I think, when yeah. the acquisition went through. And, um, of course, as a member of the industry, you read the news, and this was the year of uh, Martin Shkreli and price gouging and, you know, pharmaceuticals being becoming sort of public enemy number one. Yep. Um, and you know from working in the industry that most people get up uh, and go to work each day uh, not motivated by such things, um, that there are people doing good work things. And uh, but it's also pretty dispersed and, and not very visible, not not exactly mobilized um, in, in a way that it could be. Um, and so how, how did this like how did your thinking about like mobilizing the, the community to do some of these good works? How did that evolve into, you know, what we now call life science cares? Sure. Um, actually, coming out of Cubist, I, I had uh, as I had this insight that I wanted to do something bigger in giving back. I had this idea of, um, you know, maybe we should start uh, the Robin Hood Foundation in Boston. Um, Robinhood, for those that don't know, is probably the world's leading aggregator of resources and deploying uh, to poverty. It's based in in New York City, um, started by the um, some kind of titans of the financial community. It's a massive, massive organization. So I started out talking to people in and around Boston about, you know, we should do Robinhood Boston. Um, and not necessarily people in the in the in the biotech or pharma world, but just people who are kind of involved in philanthropy. Um, and I got lots of reasons for why it wouldn't work in Boston. Um, but uh, while that was very kind of diverse in, in opinions why it wouldn't work, what was consistent was everyone kind of ended that comment with saying, "Hey, where are you guys in the life science community? We see lots of, uh, you know, we see the finance community giving back. We see the legal community giving back. We even see the technology community giving back. But frankly, all we see in life sciences are, you know, the reports of this CEO making that much money or this company expanding. But we don't really um, see the life science community being involved in the issues of, of Greater Boston. And I kind of thought about that and said, well, that's really not fair. Because um, number one, the companies that are large enough to actually have an effort do give back in an extraordinary way, the Biogens and Vertexes, et cetera. Um, but most of our industry are small companies that frankly aren't profitable, don't have a lot of money to give back. And what they are doing is spending a lot of time on the disease areas that they're working in. So they're involved in patient groups and, and um, raising money, awareness for the, the areas that they're studying. So it was a bit of an, I think, an unfair characterization. And that's what got me thinking that, hey, you know, maybe that's something that, that I can work on. So it, um, that's what led to Life Science Cares was the idea that, OK, well, there's an unmet need here. Um, and if, if we could uh, develop a, a way for the life science community to impact Greater Boston um, and do it efficiently, particularly for those organizations that are too small to have their own effort, then that could be a real benefit for everyone. Um, and that's really what, uh, how Life Science Care started. So how is this thing structured? It, um, it serves as kind of like a, a clearinghouse for people and companies that kind of that looks at what they've got to offer and, and matches it up with existing foundations that are addressing needs. Is that, am I getting this 
halfway right? Somewhat. So our objective is to aggregate resource from the life science community. And we define life sciences uh, kind of in a broad way, including, you know, biotech and med device and all of the companies that serve it, be it legal, capital markets, um, real estate, everyone. Um, and we, we take both human uh, and financial resource and aggregate it from these organizations and then deploy those resources through um, nonprofit providers that do the best work in three areas. One is basic human survival, so hunger, homelessness, things like that. Uh, the second and our largest kind of um, percentage of our effort is education. Um, and then the third is what we call economic sustainability. So organizations that do the best work in uh, breaking the cycle of poverty, job training, job creation, etc. So um, what we do is we work with leaders and um, employees from all of these organizations to be able to deliver human capital, and that in the way of volunteers, in the way of strategic support, in the way of ideas, um, supporting these uh, chosen nonprofit partners. And we also raise money through those companies and individuals to be able to, to um, provide grants to these organizations to basically help them to do what they do that much bigger and better. Uh, we've also structured it where we have, we have a board of directors that, uh, that work with me. I chair the board. Um, and Sarah McDonald, who is our executive director and runs the organization every day, brilliantly, by the way. Um, and then we have hundreds um, of, or well over 100, I should say, advisors, which, which include C-suite leaders from across the life science community. And these folks are all um, people who are committed to helping the organization, but are not kind of in charge of the fiduciary obligations of the organizations. They're not making the decisions where the money goes or who we support, but they're recommending organizations that we should work with. They're supporting us um, by supporting our fundraising efforts, et cetera. And uh, importantly, they are also um, individually and personally covering the administrative expense of this entire effort. So all of these advisors and directors, we all collectively um, we add up what it costs to run this thing, and then we personally write a check to cover that. And that's really important because we want to be able to say to our donors, be they companies or individuals, every dollar you give to Life Science Cares goes 100% to the organizations who are doing the work fighting poverty. It's a way to kind of eliminate this middleman concern that, uh, that everyone should have if you're giving money and part of that money is going to, you know, administration, we want to make sure that we're focused on outputs. Yeah. Yeah. You don't want people to think that it's uh, putting Rob up in a nice office tower <laughs> or something. Um, so, uh, but you know, the, the things that you describe, the causes are very broad based yes. and societal, not, you know, what I think of as uh, traditional biopharma charitable endeavors, which tend to be very narrow uh, and often pretty focused on, you know, their area of company focus. Yep. So, you know, not, not to pick out names, but like if you're your company X and you've got a drug for cystic fibrosis, uh, you care a lot about that. You engage with them. And and but other people look at that and think, well, my kid doesn't have that. And I, I don't really even know what that is. I, yep. I don't benefit from that. But this is much more integrated with the whole society. Absolutely. And we, you know, we have a point of view that that none of our companies do it alone. 
Um, within every company, there is a, a community that helps it to succeed. And be whether you're small or large, um, there's a community that from the Uber drivers that drive us to work, to the people who clean our offices, to um, to the people who help us to, to you know, make sure our employees are fed. Um, all those folks are a part of this broader community. And Boston has a problem that many, many of our metro areas have in that um, the knowledge economy that all of us work in and, and, and the, the economy that we frankly have benefited greatly from is soaring. It's doing amazingly well. There are a number of people who are not in that economy and they are falling further and further behind. So the gap between the haves and the have nots is getting um, kind of increasingly large and very, very challenging. So, and in a, in a town like Boston, where geographically we are basically on top of each other, um, we live right next to the, the have nots, if you will. Um, it's really important that we have a collective point of view. So what, what we're doing is we're basically saying, look, still work with your Cystic Fibrosis Foundation, still work with the, the areas that are important to you as a company, but take some of what you would be doing and uh, give collectively. Let's do it collectively as, a, uh, as an industry. And what Life Science Cares can do is we can make sure that those dollars are operationally efficient. We can, we can assess various partners to make sure that they're, they're um, effective, that they um, are efficient, that you're giving money to organizations that are actually making a difference. Um, we can also take every dollar and kind of turbocharge it with human engagement from employees throughout the, the life science community who are going to be involved in helping them to, to deliver on their mission. So um, it really is this kind of virtuous circle that, uh, you know, organizations get involved with us and then their employees get the benefit of, of also being involved and they love it. And they end up loving their organization more because they're involved. So it really does work for everyone and most importantly for the people who um, we're focused on. Now, it's still pretty early. You've been doing this for, you know, a couple of years. Yep. Um, but um, how are you doing and how do you measure that? We're doing great. I mean, I would say we're ahead of where I expected from a human engagement standpoint. Um, and again, Sarah deserves a lot of the credit there. We're, um, we're making a difference uh, for our partners, and um, we, we can measure that in lots of ways. We have quantitative metrics in terms of number of hours, volunteer hours, and we know how much money we've given away. <clears throat> but frankly, what's, what's, uh, I'll give you one example. Um, one of our partners is an organization called Food for Free. It's a, uh, a food redistribution uh, organization where they essentially take food that would otherwise be thrown away and... Uh, repackage it in a very dignified way, in a temperature-controlled way, and feed uh, hungry people the very same day. Uh, Food for Free is a small organization based in Cambridge. And um, we went in and talked to them, thought that, that they had a tremendous kind of uh, uh, infrastructure, but they had no connection to the life science industry, even though Cambridge is basically our home. Um, so we put Food for Free together with the largest of the um, companies in the Kendall Square area, the Biogens, the Novartis, Takeda's, et cetera, and had the food service um, uh, leaders from each organization come together with the Food for Freeze people um, and our people and just kind of sit and brainstorm about how we can help. And that ended up being um, a, a, a meeting where now we have 
uh, hundreds of pounds of food being delivered through Food for Free out of these organizations that would otherwise be thrown away. It wasn't a huge financial commitment, but just the energy and frankly, the commitment of the leaders of those organizations to say to their food service people, hey, I want you to be involved in this um, is, is a great example of kind of how Life Science Cares works. Um, we're, we certainly support them with money, but the money is just a part of it. The, the um, human capital, the volunteers, and um, ultimately the strategic support to set all this up is now we're, uh, um, resulting in tangible benefits for hungry kids and families in, in Cambridge. And that's just one example. Well, it's uh, in some ways, it's just common sense. I mean, it doesn't something like that doesn't take a lot of money. It, doesn't. Um, it just takes a little it takes a little coordination, um, a, a little, you know, somebody to be that broker, um, really. Um, so I um, I applaud the effort. I you know, we've spoken about it before. I, I think it could be scaled into other communities, maybe not by you or this organization, but certainly, I mean, it makes sense in other biotech hubs, other tech hubs. Yeah, um, we're looking at that now because we're, we're frankly, we've gotten requests from the Philadelphia area, from uh, Northern California, Southern California, as well as uh, North Carolina. Um, people want to do it elsewhere. And we are in the process of um, having our second affiliate uh, announced soon. I won't get into it just yet, but uh, we want to make sure we have an idea of what the what elements need to be in place in order for it to be successful. Um, but we do have uh, probably the second uh, location, hopefully getting started this year. But I'm just ecstatic about it because, you know, when you start something like this, you go out to a bunch of friends who, um, you know, you kind of are sending them an email to say, have this wacky idea. Uh, you know, what do you think? And you're not sure whether people are going to come back and say, what? <laughs> you know, we have a lot we have a lot going on here. But um as we shouldn't surprise anyone, the, the leaders of our industry are amazing. And people came back one after another saying, I'm in, how can I help? And we've seen that from the very first moments of this organization, both from the leaders of, of companies as well as from employees. And now we have companies calling us to say, hey, we want to be involved because we want um, our people to um, have an outlet to uh, be able to impact the community. So we're we're becoming a bit of an outsourced corporate social responsibility department for companies that aren't large enough to have their own corporate social responsibility effort. Well, there certainly are a lot of them. There are and a lot that of is them. a good sign to, to get inbound inquiry like that. You know, as a sales guy, like when people are calling you and want your thing, that's good. Good sign. Absolutely. <laughs> um, so, um, but now this is quite a passion project. I, I wanted to ask you about it, uh, but you do some other things. You're on some boards. Um, uh, do you think you'll ever get back in the arena in an operating capacity again, full time? I never say never, but, um, I think it's unlikely unless the opportunity is amazing. Um, I'm executive chairing a, a company called Achille, which is a digital therapeutics company that I'm, I'm very excited about. And that's, that's a really good model for me. And that I can be involved in operations. I work with a tremendously talented uh, young CEO who, um, you know, is doing a fantastic job, but I can help him in the areas where he, he uh, may not have as much experience. So that's a really good model for me because it gives me um, more than just a board seat. It gives me an opportunity to work on operations, but I also don't have to be there every day. Um, and it also allows me time to, to do life science cares and all the other stuff I'm involved in. Well, 
Thanks so much, Rob, for what you do. Uh, thanks for joining me on the Long Run Podcast. Thanks, Luke. And really, it was my pleasure. Much appreciated. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timberman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the producer and editor. Music comes from D.A. Wallach. Thanks to Presage Biosciences for sponsoring. And thanks for listening to The Long Run. Tell your friends about it on your favorite podcast app or on social media. See you next episode.